I've often said I either need longer prayers or longer legs to get up here more quickly. So anyway, thanks, guys. Hey, um, be in prayer with us this week for Pastor Matt and his family. They have been uh, suffering all week, uh, suffering for Christ in Lake Tahoe, that is, where they are <laughs> on a, a well-deserved, much-needed just time away with their family. But uh, blessed to be here this morning with you. Uh, turn to Revelation chapter 12, where we are, and uh, do come uh, be with us on Wednesday night for that Backyard Bash, um, and uh, it's going to be a great time, and as we said, we would love you to invite anybody and everybody that you can think of to invite, and for the ladies, my apologies, it is a movie night on Friday night. I used to be able to blame those bulletin errors on Microsoft Windows, but we switched to Mac a couple years ago, and so now I have no one to blame but myself. Revelation chapter 12, and certainly, you know, more, more news this week of, you know, evil and unrest in the world, and, and so we come here maybe sometimes on a Sunday morning with heavy hearts, and, you know, each time we, it seems like each time we turn on the TV or we log on to any kind of media, um, you know, it's one thing after another, and so we pray, don't we? We pray for those who are affected by each tragedy, we pray for an end to all of this senseless violence and an end to the pain and the suffering. And at the very same time, um, we just rest, don't we? And we rest in the hope and we rest in the trust that we have in the sovereign God that we serve. And we rest in those precious promises that he gives us in his word that ultimately righteousness will triumph. Amen? And as we've been studying through Revelation together on Sunday mornings, we are getting a glimpse of this rough road that is ahead for humanity before that time comes. Here we are in chapter 12. Uh, chronologically, it's at that midway point in the tribulation. It's three and a half years into that seven-year period, right, that we call the tribulation or Daniel's 70th week of his prophecy out of Daniel chapter 9. What we've seen is the first two sets of the three judgments that are going to be poured out upon the earth. We've seen so far what, what we refer to as the wrath of the Lamb, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. And then two weeks ago, we started another kind of a parenthesis, right, a parenthetical section that's placed here in the middle of the book, in the middle of the tribulation, chapters 10 through 14 give us a lot of additional information as a background to the seal and the trumpet and then the bowl judgments. You remember back in chapter 10, what a lot of people call the little book. Uh, we're reminded there, Jesus assures us that God will indeed finish his program. And then as we moved last week with Pastor Matt into chapter 11, we looked at the two witnesses and we saw the chapter start out with the measuring of the temple, right? This indication to us that indeed the Jews we will rebuild their temple there in the city of Jerusalem. Likely that will happen during that first half of the tribulation period at the point that God has removed his church right from the earth and he turns his attention back to deal with his people 
Israel. Then we saw the ministry of these two witnesses, right? These two powerful witnesses that God will raise up, possibly, you know, Moses and Elijah to serve as prophets to the world, really, for 1,260 days. Conveniently, that's three and a half years, right? It's that first half of the tribulation period. And they're going to be God's sole testimony during this dark period in human history. And then we know, we read that at the end of that time, that God will allow the beast, right, the Antichrist, to oppose them and finally to slay them. And then it's this final rejection, right, that here at the midpoint of the tribulation, this is what actually brings on the beginning of the end. And at the very end of our chapter last week, we saw kind of what is the beginning of the end. It was the sounding of that seventh trumpet. Now, remember in chapter 10, we were told that it was this seventh trumpet that would bring about or it would accomplish the mystery of God, right? The fulfilling of so many of those Old Testament passages that relate and that point to the second coming of Christ and the establishing of his kingdom. So truly, when we say this is the beginning of the end, right? This is it. The seventh trumpet introduces and it includes what we're going to see are the seven bowl judgments, You know, beautiful thing about chapter 11, we saw that it began with this discussion of the temple on earth, and then we saw as it closed that there was this vision of the temple in heaven, right? This assurance of God's faithfulness. There was that beautiful um, symbol of the ark in heaven, right? The ark which symbolized, it represents God's presence there with his people. And that vision of the ark, imagine how it would have so greatly encouraged all of God's suffering people, specifically to whom John wrote the book, but also throughout the ages, that that God is faithful and that God will indeed fulfill all of those promises. Now, as we move this morning into chapter 12, we're going to find, I think, yet another source of great encouragement. Ironically, though the general theme of the chapter is conflict, right? We're going to watch the forces of Satan opposing the people of God. And in fact, our text today outlines in such an amazing way, I think some of the most major themes of the Bible and really gives us some, some special insight into our conflict, into our enemy, into some of his tactics, and ultimately into his fate. And Interestingly, it conveniently complements the reading this week for those of you that are involved in Rooted. Because in Rooted this week, we're going to really be examining our enemy there as well. Now, I know that some of you this morning are uncomfortable and kind of squirming in your seats already at the thought of the existence of an actual devil. Right? People don't like to admit that he's there, and yet the scriptures make no doubt about the harsh reality of this being and the hatred that he has for God's program and for God's people. Specifically, as we, as we look at kind of this uncomfortable topic today, we're going to see in the first six verses, we're going to see the wonders in heaven. Then next, we're going to see a war in heaven. And then finally, we're going to see wrath on earth. And in the midst of all of this, I promise you that this text is going to detail for us and be an encouragement to us about the way that the Lord protects us and the way that he, you know, he plans to defeat 
our greatest foe. So I'd actually like to read this morning. The text is only 17 verses. Let's read it together. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 12, it says that a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the presence to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for the way, Lord, with, Lord, such um, painful accuracy, you outline for us the things that uh, we can expect. Lord, we pray that you would help to give us understanding Lord, not only of these events, Lord, but give us understanding of your heart, um, Lord, as the heart behind them. And so we pray, Lord, that the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here today. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's, it's easy to read a chapter like this with the detail that it includes and sort of end up kind of confused, right, about how to unlock some of the meaning. And yet Pastor Matt has reminded us that the key to understanding these difficult New Testament passages is often simply the Old Testament, right? Augustine was the one credited with uh, first saying the old adage that the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. 
Another version I've heard is the new is in the old contained, the old is in the new explained, or the new is in the old enfolded, the old is in the new unfolded, and a new one that I heard that the new is in the old patent and the old is in the new latent. Now, I'm not quite sure about that one. I'm thinking that was British folks that came up with that one. But at any rate, right, we get the idea that we need the Old Testament to help understand the New Testament, and we need the New Testament to help understand the Old Testament. And we're going to see this morning as we work through the text, starting back in verse 1, looking at these wonders in heaven, right? These are the first of a series of seven signs, right, called wonders that are given to us in chapters 12 and 13 and 14. And as signs, we know that they're symbols, right, of something or of someone that God is about to reveal, right? Give us more information about these things. And though the signs we're going to see were seen in heaven, they point to events that occur on earth. Beginning with those first two verses, looking at the sign of the woman. It said that a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So, the obvious question, who was this woman? Right, of course, it won't surprise you that throughout history there have been a number of different suggestions about this, right? Some students want us to believe that this is Mary, right, the mother of of the Lord Jesus. And yet as we look down at verse 6 and then verses 13 through 17, that kind of becomes impossible. I think we're going to see that. In the next suggestion, Mary Baker Eddy, right, actually wants us to believe that she herself is the woman and that Christian science is the child that's birthed and that the dragon is the world who's trying to destroy her new religion. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time this morning on that one. Others would have us believe that the woman is the church, right, that it's us. And yet this picture also is kind of twisted in that the church couldn't give birth to the one who would rule and reign, right? The church doesn't give birth to Jesus. Jesus gives birth to the church. So the only contextual, the only theological solution to this question is that the woman symbolizes Israel, right? Contextually, While the church is the bride of Christ, both Isaiah and Hosea identify Israel as who? As the wife of Jehovah. Now, theologically, we find the same answer in the the first mention of the sun and the moon and the stars. Remember back in Genesis chapter 37, those were symbols that appeared in Joseph's dream. Remember that the the sun and the moon referred to Jacob and Rachel, and then uh, all of the the stars referred to Joseph's 12 brothers, right? The 12 sons of Jacob, who would be the fathers of the nation of Israel. So finally, of course, it's Israel who's the one who gives birth to the one who will rule in righteousness over all of the nations, right? So we have this picture, right? The, The nation of Israel ready to give birth, right? Ready to bring forth the Messiah, and it says in verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. 
So the fiery red dragon is Satan, right? Verse 9 tells us very clearly it's called the, the devil and Satan. So the color red here, right, indicates maybe all the bloodshed that's, that's uh, part of this period or maybe just his general fiery disposition, right? The reference here to these seven heads, that's a reference to the city from which the Antichrist will someday reign. It's that city referred to throughout history as the city of the seven hills. It's the city of Rome, right? Now, the seven heads refer to this geographical place, but the ten horns in this verse refer to what will be Satan's political base, right? The horns, just like the ten toes that we see in Daniel chapter 2 and in Daniel chapter 7, these typify this ten-nation confederation that's going to emerge in the last days, we believe, from kind of that old Roman Empire. Now, we're going to learn much more about these heads and these horns and these crowns as we get up into chapters 13 and, and 17, where we're going to see the, the Antichrist really described for us. But for now, as we consider this picture of Satan himself, in verse 4, we find this reference to Isaiah chapter 14, right, which describes for us the story of Satan's fall. Right. Remember, Satan fell from his previous glory as Lucifer, who was a, probably an archangel, like, a lot like Michael or Gabriel. And Lucifer, the Bible tells us, was the chief of all created beings in heaven when he decided to revolt against God. And in this attempt to exalt himself, he took along a third of the angels down with him. Right, those fallen angels are what we understand to be demons today. So in this revolt right, that happened in eternity past, Lucifer, the shining star, becomes Satan, the adversary. Right? And that was the beginning of this mission that he's been on to thwart the purposes of God and to oppose the people of God. And he has been practicing it now for thousands and thousands of years. Author Mark Twain wrote this. He said, we may not pay Satan reverence, for that would be indiscreet, but we can at least respect his talents. A person who has for untold centuries maintained the imposing position of spiritual head of four-fifths of the human race and political head of the whole of it must be granted the possession of executive abilities of the loftiest order. Satan is good at what he does. And Satan knows the scriptures, doesn't he? He knows the mission of the Messiah, and that's why he's been trying to destroy Jesus Christ. We see during the Old Testament times, Satan did everything he could possibly do just to keep the Savior from being born. When Jesus was born, Matthew chapter 2, he tries immediately to have him killed. During his earthly life, we see that Jesus was attacked repeatedly by Satan, ending finally at the cross, where ironically it was through his very death that Jesus conquered over death through his resurrection. Even after that, we see that when Satan failed to destroy Jesus, he now continued in his plan now to destroy the people of Jesus who are the Jews. Right? We see that Satan's attempt to annihilate Israel is this overriding theme all the way through both bi biblical and through secular history, right? Whether it's through Cain or Pharaoh or 
Haman or Herod or Hitler or now through any of the other current hosts of the enemies of Israel, Satan has been relentless to destroy God's people, right? As it says here in verse 4, to devour the child of the woman. His reasoning is simple. If there's no Jerusalem, there's no Israel. If there are no Jewish people, then Jesus can't fulfill the prophecies of returning and ruling and reigning over them. So the plan of the dragon, right, is to keep Messiah Jesus from returning to Israel by somehow annihilating the Jews. And so now we have the stage set, don't we? We have the woman Israel. We have the dragon Satan who's bent on the destruction of, of her offspring. And now in verses five and six, we see the Christ. It says that she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now, these two simple verses, right, as well as some of the ones that follow, they cover a huge hunk of human history, don't they? And they can be a little bit puzzling because they don't necessarily follow a strict kind of a chronological order. And yet, as we, as we look at other biblical texts, the order of them is pretty easily unlocked. In the first half of verse 5, we have the birth of Jesus, right? who Micah chapter 5 and Psalm 2 both say will be the one who will rule over all the nations with a rod of iron. Right, the second half of verse 5, we see his ascension to heaven, right? recorded in Luke 24 and in Acts 1 as well. And there's this gap right, of at least 33 or so years between the first and second sentences of verse 5. Right? And then between verse 5 and 6, Right between the ascension and the flight of the woman to the wilderness, there's another gap. It's a longer gap. It's the entire church age, right? It's where we currently sit right now, right? It's that time following the ascension and ending with the rapture of the church, which kicks off that seven-year tribulation period, right? Now, why and when does the woman Israel flee? Well, we're going to see, right? It's when the Antichrist em enters the temple during that tribulation time. That temple that we saw with Pastor Matt last week is rebuilt in the first half of the tribulation. At the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist goes in there, demands to be worshipped as God, right? This kicks off that second three and a half year period of the great tribulation. That's the time that was spoken by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. That's that 1,260 days, right? This three and a half years of unparalleled hostility that's going to break loose against the Jews. And this is why Jesus told the Jews in Matthew chapter 24, verse 16, he said, flee to the wilderness, right? When you see this day come, right? And that's exactly what happens, right? All of this happens chronologically. It's actually triggered by what we read next in verse 7, which starts to talk about this war in heaven. In verse 7, it says that war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, 
that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So this all out, right, last day's persecution of the Jews by Satan comes as a result of him getting finally booted out of heaven. Now, the concept of Satan in heaven is a little bit difficult to comprehend, isn't it? And yet, the first two chapters of Job make it clear that Satan does indeed have access to heaven, right? Verse 9 with Zechariah chapter 3 both tell us that Satan is there accusing the saints continually before the throne of God. Now, we know that Satan was defeated at the first coming of Jesus Christ. Amen. He was defeated at the cross. But what we need to understand is that his actual execution is delayed, right? And his execution is being completed, if you will, in stages, right? Right now, he still enjoys access to the throne of God, accusing the saints before him. Here in verses 8 and 9, we're going to see he's going to be cast out, right? In the middle of the tribulation, following this struggle, right? Later... In chapter 20, before the millennial reign, we know that he's going to be bound. And then finally, in, in, uh, in the end of chapter 20, he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire, right? To spend eternity there. Now, at that point, right, this battle that began back in Genesis chapter 3 as Satan, you know, masquerading as the serpent, deceived Eve. Then he led the whole world astray, Right? Finally, that's going to be completed in Revelation chapter 20. And yet for here, for now, he's finally and fully cast out of heaven. And so we see there's, there's, this, there's this joy that results over this first victory, right? In this, we're going to see these, these voices from heaven praising God in advance for accomplishing his will. Look at verse 10. It says, that, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and see for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. What a glorious, right? What a, a praiseworthy passage, right? Satan is overcome in heaven. And notice that the basis for this victory is the blood of our Savior, right? It's the blood of the Lamb, right? Simply, it's the blood of our Savior that was shed for us on the cross. That's what has rendered Satan a defeated foe. And though defeated, we know that Satan plans to go down swinging, doesn't he? Right? He's going to attempt to destroy as much of Christ's work as he possibly can. Now, it goes without saying that Satan's power is real and it's terrifying. But it's not because he's ultimately triumphant, is it? In a sense, it's, it's more real and it's more terrifying because he knows he's beaten. He knows he has a short time left. And in a sense, he's like this wounded, cornered animal that fights even more ferociously. 
There have been some who'd suggested that Satan might well have just given up his fight against God and against humanity, except that he is so utterly depraved, right? And possibly insane in some way. Some have even suggested that he may have even deceived himself into thinking that he still has a chance. Now, we don't know. Now, but whether he's depraved or insane, he is so very adept, isn't he? And he's very effective. And these verses give us some really clear detail about one of Satan's key strategies, right? One of the key activities that he's engaged in against every one of us in this room even now, right? It says here in verse 10, the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night, right? Make no mistake, even now, right? In heaven, before the throne of God, Satan continues to make all of these accusations against every one of us, pointing out each fault, right? Pointing out each failure, pointing out each time we fall in our walk. You know, Satan is a lot like the prosecuting attorney, isn't he? He's constantly accusing us. He's condemning us. He's building up this case of evidence against us, some of us more than others, amen? But 1 John 2 says that if any man sin, he has what? He has an advocate, capital A, advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The Lord Jesus Christ who acts as our defense attorney, right? He acts as our attorney and he applies his precious blood, the blood of the lamb, and he applies it to our sin. And so we're declared innocent by the father, right? Innocent by the judge. You see, as, as damaging and as devastating as Satan's accusations could ever be in our lives, the truth of the Bible is that we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's something to amen about. In 1 John 1, verse 7, it says that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his Son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all sin. And I know that a well-taught group like us have been told repeatedly, right, that, that both the sense and the tense of that verb cleanses suggests that it is something that is ongoing, something that's continually occurring. And yet, the same, rea you know, the reality is that the very same scene that happens every day in heaven, right, as our enemy brings these accusations, and yet is taken care of, like theologically, the truth is that it also happens every day here on earth, doesn't it? And, and sometimes it results tragically. And I'm talking about those times when the enemy's whispering his lies into our ears, right? When he's whispering those things to us, like, you know what? You're not actually worthy to be blessed. You're not worthy of forgiveness. You're not good enough to be used. You know, you've crossed the line this time, brother. Or you know, sister, you've really overstepped God's grace here. Have you heard those things? And yet what we need to know is this too can be taken care of, right? And it's taken care of as we rightly understand and then as we simply firmly stand on the teaching of the scriptures. 
Because God's word is true, isn't it? It's unchangeable. It's unchangeable despite our understanding or our feelings, right? Both of which, by the way, can be wrong. You know, we need to understand the difference between condemnation, which comes from Satan, and conviction, which comes from the Holy Spirit, right? That condemning work of Satan always pushes us further away from God, right? Makes us think that we've somehow worn out his grace, while the conviction of the Spirit, on the other hand, it always draws us closer to God, doesn't it? It drives us to the foot of the cross because we want restoration and we're confident of God's desire and we're confident of his ability to provide it, right? The condemnation of Satan is always about not measuring up, whereas the conviction of the spirit is always about forgiveness, right? It's about going on. It's about God's glory and it's about God's grace given to us through his son, Jesus. I love the, what, what Tozer said on this. He said, I'm not afraid of the devil. He said, the devil can handle me. He's got judo I never heard of. But he can't handle the one to whom I'm joined. He can't handle the one to whom I'm united. He can't handle the one whose nature dwells in my nature. So let me encourage each one of us that are here this morning. The next time the accuser gets into your head, right, with those horrible lies, run, right, seek shelter at the foot of the cross, right? That's where we're going to find forgiveness, right? Just like with the Apostle Paul, right, in in Hebrews chapter 4, we would come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because when we do, right, just like we see in these verses, when we do that, there can be joy in our lives, right? Just like we saw in these verses, there's joy in heaven because Satan has been defeated. And yet, the truth is, right, as our text today tells us, that for a little while longer, while there may be joy in heaven, there's going to be woe on earth, isn't there? And from this point in the text, verse 13, Satan's time is short, He's got three and a half years and they're going to be like nothing we could ever imagine because following this war in heaven, now in verse 13, we start to look at the wrath on earth. It says, now when the dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the great dragon comes crashing down in great wrath, right? And since he can't any longer accuse the saints before the throne in heaven, now he's going to turn up the heat as he persecutes them here on the earth. So the liar has now become the lion, right? And now he's truly seeking whom he may devour, and he's focusing his attacks at this point, of course, on Israel, Understand, anti-Semitism, right, persecution of the Jews has always been satanic in origin, right? We see it here. Satan couldn't kill the woman's son. So now here he's making this final attempt to exterminate 
her seed, right? To exterminate, to do away with that believing remnant of Israel. And yet verse 14 tells us what? That God's going to protect that Jewish remnant, right? Two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. Remember in Exodus chapter 19, when God led Israel out of Egypt, it was on what? It was on eagle's wings, Right? Remember Deuteronomy chapter 32 then says that God cared for them in the wilderness the way a mother eagle would care for her chicks, right? her eaglets. Right? So once again here, God's going to take his believing remnant to a special place of protection where Satan can't penetrate. And that he's going to preserve them there for a time, a times, and half a time. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, we've seen the same language Daniel chapter 7, chapter 12, it's that three and a half years of the great tribulation. A time is one year, times two years, and then add another half time to that, three and a half years. There's a passage in Isaiah 16 that suggests that this place of protection would be Petra. No, it's not an 80s Christian rock band. It's this location in modern day Jordan, right? It's this city carved of stone that has stood there for centuries. And it's been preserved largely because the only entrance is this passageway that's just 12 feet wide. And then it opens up into this huge canyon, which would be capable of caring for and capable for the sheltering of thousands and thousands of people. Google it. Check out the images. It's phenomenal. Right? But as the the Jewish remnant flees to this safe haven, it says in verse 15 that the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. So here, Satan now uses this waters as a flood, right, to try to exterminate the Jews. Possibly this symbolizes some kind of a great army that's been sent after them um, out of the mouth, right, spewed out of the mouth of the Antichrist. And this army would pursue them right out into the wilderness, the same way that Pharaoh's army pursued the fleeing Israelites before, right, chasing them out there like a flood. And yet verse 16 says the army won't be successful. Why? Because the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood. Now, where have we seen this before? Numbers chapter 16, right? We find exactly an account of the earth opening up and devouring people. Remember after rebelling against Moses, the earth opened up under the feet of Korah and of Dathan and Abiram, and it swallowed up not just them, but all of their families, right? And all of their possessions, all of their allies. And you're thinking, okay, I get that. And yet we're not talking about a few camels and tents here, right? We're talking about a huge invading modern day army. And that's true. But if you look even at modern military history, especially in the Middle East, we see there are examples of entire missions that have been mysteriously thwarted by 
sandstorms, right? If you remember back, remember the hostage crisis of the 80s and negotiations failed to bring about the release of the hostages. And so we decided we were going to send in the military. And there were months and months of planning. We sent our most advanced technology, right? Our, our, our finest trained fighting forces, we sent them to Iran. And yet you remember that as they approached the embassy, there was this sandstorm that broke loose from nowhere that was so severe that it grounded the helicopters. It shut down the entire mission. Now that's only a story to say that the Middle East is God's amphitheater, isn't it? And the earth could just as easily open up and swallow up an entire army right, as a sandstorm could ground some helicopters. And I want to encourage you again this morning that the very same thing is true, isn't it, in our lives as believers, that the Lord is completely capable in whatever the situation is of protecting his people, isn't he? Sometimes he provides protection from the things that threaten us by providing a place of refuge for us, right? A place where we can just go and we can ride out the attack. It's kind of like our own personal Petra, right? That's been prepared for us and that's ready for us just to flee and to seek shelter and to just be supernaturally sealed there by the Lord. And yet there are other times when he provides protection for us by dealing directly with our enemies, Right? And we've all had it happen where it seems like he just swallowed up all of the circumstances that were threatening to us. Isaiah chapter 41 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So the next time you are overwhelmed, Think about Revelation chapter 12 and seek refuge in the Lord, right? Depend on him to be the one that delivers you. Remember here, as God's people flee from their enemies, right? As the Antichrist tries to destroy them once and for all, we're going to see ultimately he's not successful, is he? He's not successful in his attempt to finish off those Jews who have fled to the wilderness. Verse 17, it says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. There we are right now. God assists the Israelites, right? They're not completely destroyed. Although Zechariah 13 tells us, it says that two-thirds will be struck down and perish. So only a third of the nation of Israel is preserved here, right? But Satan, the dragon, in this final and frustrated rage, continues to war against the rest of the Jewish people. Now, it's not hard, is it, to look around at our world today, or just to look at the lives of so many of the people that we love and to see that even today, Satan is enraged with the woman Israel, right? And he's also enraged with every one of us who are part of her spiritual offspring. 
part of what it says there in verse 17. The, the followers of Jesus Christ who seek to keep the commandments of God and to have the testimony of Jesus Christ. See, because his assaults on our Savior have failed, and because it's now through us, his church, that Christ is continuing his work in this world, Satan is targeting and he's focusing his attacks on us. That's why Paul explains that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Right? And, and so there are these attacks. Right? And we're all very familiar with them, and yet they can come in so many different forms. Right? Paul writes in the letters about the fiery darts right, or the wiles of the devil. Right? And these are some of the ways that Satan sometimes wages his most effective war, and it's in the battleground of our minds, isn't it? And it's in the battleground of our hearts. And it's those feelings that we struggle with of condemnation and of doubt and of fear, right? the evil thoughts, the depression, the, the temptation. And yet what we can take courage in is that the, although the, the attacks are so varied, aren't they? They're so complicated sometimes. What we see is that the solution that's offered in our text today is profoundly simple and it's powerfully effective. In verse 11, there was this guideline given to us for overcoming the attacks of the enemy. Jump back up there with me. It says in verse 11 that they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. So simply speaking, we can overcome the enemy with three weapons. Number one, the blood of the lamb. Amen? We've already talked about the fact that it continually cleanses us from sin. It assures us of forgiveness as we're simply faithful to confess our sins. You know, other than the complete rejection of Jesus Christ, there is no sin too great that the blood of Jesus Christ can't cleanse us. Amen? Number two, right, we can overcome the enemy with the word of our testimony. And this is actually two great weapons in one, right? It's the word of God, right? It's the testimony of God, right? That's the thing that equips us and upon which we stand and, the, and we wage this war against the lies of the enemy. But it's also our own experience, isn't it? It's our personal testimony. And that's the thing sometimes better than anything that reminds us of all that the Lord has done for us reminds us of his grace in our lives, reminds us of the way he's been so faithful to us in the past. It reminds us of when we accepted that offer of his forgiveness. And it's as we remember and it's as we share with others the testimony of God's grace, as we lean on the promises of his word, our accuser will stand silenced. He'll be weakened, and we, on the other hand, will stand reminded and will be strengthened to persevere. Right? In addition to the blood of the Lamb, in addition to the word of our testimony, we're reminded of the dying to self, right? It says there that they did not love their lives to the death. 
In Matthew 16, Jesus said that whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's only as we are willing to die to ourselves, right? Only as we are willing to stop being so concerned and consumed about our lives, right? Our plans, our comfort. It's only when we're able to be more concerned about the, whether or not that the, the crucified, resurrected life of Christ is what's actually coming out of us, right? It's as we stop holding so tightly to all of those things that we just can't control, and instead we just continue to trust in our Heavenly Father who actually holds and controls all of those things, right? It's as we stop seeking our own good, but look instead for ways that we can seek and serve others and bring glory to God through it, then we'll be able, won't we, to overcome those fiery darts and those wiles of the devil, all of those accusations and the condemnation that Satan brings, right? As we live lives that are fueled by the spirit and that are free of guilt and live with a clear conscience before God and men, that's when we're able to really step in and enjoy this. You know, our enemy is formidable. And yet we need to be encouraged this morning. And I don't want you to be encouraged by me. Be encouraged by the testimony of God, right? Be encouraged by our text today that we have this assurance of victory against the enemy, right? As we simply allow the blood of Christ, as we allow the word of our testimony to be what gives us strength. Now I want to close this morning with a quick, but I think a beautiful quote. Um, a man named John Knox, who was a pastor, he was a reformer in Scotland in the 1500s. And, and he wrote this that sums up not only, I think, the battle that we face, but really the power that we have to face it. He writes, Mark what has been the practice of the devil from the beginning most cruelly to rage against God's children when God begins to show them his mercy. And therefore marvel not, dearly beloved, though this should happen to you. If Satan fume and roar against you, whether it be against your bodies by persecution or inwardly in your consciences by a spiritual battle, do not be discouraged as though you were less acceptable in God's presence or that Satan might at any time prevail against you. No. I have good hope, and my prayer will likewise be that you may be so strengthened that the world and Satan himself may understand and perceive that God is fighting your battle. Amen? Let's be encouraged in that this morning. Father, we thank you, Lord, for... Uh, the tremendous encouragement that your word provides to us, Lord, and the way that it strengthens us. Lord, the way that you equip and empower us to face these daily struggles and trials, Lord, these things that are sometimes satanically um, birthed, Lord, to, to trip us up and to discourage us, Lord, and to render us ineffective for your kingdom. Lord, we pray that we would Take courage, Lord, as we see how the story ends, as we watch the way that you provide for and protect your people, Lord, that we would expect nothing less from you. So, Father, encourage our hearts today, we pray. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.